welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, I have a fun show. <laughs> Maybe fun isn't the word to use. <laughs> An interesting show for you today, um, particularly since there are, I'm going to be talking about two cases that are in trial right now. I'm putting on my forensic psychiatrist expert witness hat. And um, we are about to hear the verdicts in these two trials. And so I want to give you some background so that when you hear the verdicts, probably this week, um, you will, you will, if you agree with me, um, you don't have to agree with me, but you, you, you'll have some idea about the cases and either be happy and think that justice was done or else be angry. Um well, these two cases that I'm going to talk to you about are, first of all, um, the case of Nicholas Cruz. He is um, the young man who is on trial for the shooting at the Parkland School in Florida. This was in 2018 on Valentine's Day. And then also Kristen Smart, the um, 19-year-old freshman at California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo, California, who um, during her freshman year went to a party and started on the walk home and never, never uh, was never never was seen again. Um, and her, the two men who are suspected of being involved in her killing are on trial. So I'll talk to you about that case in the second half. Both of these are, are really fascinating. Um, so starting with the Cruz case, Nicholas Cruz, I have been following this case since uh, 20, since it happened, Valentine's Day 2018. Um, and I have... You know, I've done lots of television interviews about it, radio interviews. I've written, um, I have a column called Inside the Criminal Mind that is published in um, frontpagedetectives.com. You can see uh, I, I've actually written columns on both of these people, Nicholas Cruz and Kristen Smart. And I've written columns on many other criminals <laughs> whose minds I went behind or inside. Um, so you can find them in frontpagedetectives.com. That's a plural, detectives plural. Okay. So now um, Nicholas Cruz, his trial is going on in Florida. And um, it is currently, uh, well, it is currently at the, almost at the point of giving it to the jury. Um, the prosecutor has just given his closing close closing argument and um the uh, defense attorneys will be giving their closing argument today as well uh or at least that's what they're expecting and then tomorrow wednesday it's going to go to the jury now i have been uh as i started to say i've been following this case since it happened since he went into uh marjorie stoneman douglas high school and on Valentine's Day 2018 and um, killed 
17 people and, you know, a school shooter, a mass shooting. And um, they found him, you know, they arrested him uh, just not long after, a couple of hours later. And so then um, he was, there, there was a video of his uh, interrogation right after they arrested him. And there also was a 217-page confession. So I read the confession, and I analyzed play-by-play his jailhouse interrogation on live TV. Um, So in other words, they were playing the interrogation, and then they would break every once in a while, and I would analyze it. So, (laughs) So I know this case pretty damn well. And um, it has been painful to watch it play out. Now, I'm not in any way um, saying that what he did was right, but the idea of giving him the death penalty would be a gross miscarriage of justice. He does not deserve the death penalty. He's 24 years old now, and... um, he um unfortunately he, well first of all this is all about his really 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 bad attorneys um they have messed this thing up from beginning to end the beginning uh, at the beginning how they messed it up was they got him to enter a guilty plea instead of going for not guilty by reason of insanity they gave him bad advice and um and uh and he pleaded guilty at at some point last year now so what's go- what is going on right now in the trial is just the penalty phase so in other words they are to assume that he is guilty and the only question now for the jurors is whether um he should get um the death penalty or life in prison without parole now, first of all, this trial shouldn't be happening altogether. It is um, a travesty that it's happening because it is putting the um, parents, the families of the people who died at the high school through torture, literally torture. I don't know if you've seen any of it, but the prosecutor has prostituted, you know, it's so ironic or hypocritical because the prosecutor has been trying to portray Nicholas Cruz as sadistic and the, the, a monster, the worst person who ever walked this earth. And yet the prosecutor has been so incredibly sadistic that um, it really, he's the one, you know, I'm not saying he should get the death penalty, but I think it's very hypocritical for him to be saying all these horrible things about Nicholas Cruz when he is seems to be getting enjoyment out of seeing the parents and families squirm. You know, some of them walk out crying. It started from the very beginning. I've watched a lot of the trial um, from the very beginning when he started showing videos, videos um of the of the killings you know of the um of nicholas cruz's rampage through the high school people left in tears and um and 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 then he kept on doing it you know they he he well and then as you may well know um he had the families oh no i'm sorry he had the jurors um go through the high school 
go that was part of this trial he had this was the you know the uh what the finale well i don't know about a finale but the high point the the climax i guess um of the trial he had them walk through the high school and um that had of course you know it was so emotional because um the high school apparently they didn't change anything even though we're talking about february 2018 <laughs> so um that's over four years four and a half years approximately um and they didn't touch anything and it was very emotional because not only was their blood spatter all over and chairs overturned and things like that but there were valentine's day cards and essays and um presents you know kids getting each other a valentine's so it was like this contrast of love you know valent celebrating valentine's day with the gore of the uh school shooting and um you know i just hope my only hope is that um because they would need a it to be unanimous I hope there is one brave juror who will not vote for the death penalty. And apparently, you know, they're going to go do this um, for each of the 17 people who died. So in other words, um, they're going to have to take a vote. Of course, it would presumably be the same same vote uh, for each of the people who died, you know, each of the killings uh, as to whether it should be the death penalty or or uh, life in prison. Um, but if there is one person who doesn't vote for the death penalty on one of these cases, you know, one of the one of the victims, um, then he would get life in prison. So I think the chance there are there is a chance, <laughs> you know, that he won't get the death penalty if someone is brave enough to uh, to vote against the death penalty. And I say brave enough because there has been a lot of pressure in Florida uh, to, first of all, to bring him to trial. The defense originally asked for a plea deal where uh, he would get life in prison. They wouldn't have a trial and he would just they would just agree to life in prison. Well, the prosecutor didn't want that. He wanted his time in the sun. You know, clearly he's going to be um, using this to run for office. Uh, you know, I, I got I got nicholas cruz i i'm the one who put him to death ha ha i vote for me i mean it is really sick he is the one who, well nicholas cruz is sick too and i'm going to tell you about about um what his psychiatric problems are in a minute but um it has just now the judge another part of this is the judge who the defense has tried to get to recuse herself because they have said that she is prejudiced against Nicholas. And I must agree that that is true. The judge has made pretty much every decision, whenever there was something that came up where she had to decide something for Nicholas or against Nicholas, she almost 100% of the time she voted against, I mean, she ordered <laughs> against Nicholas. So it is true that she was prejudiced against him. But be that as it may, that is not the reason. If he gets the death penalty, I mean, it's not just because of the judge. It's because of his horrendous, horrendous defense uh, team. 
And um, they, as I said, they have made one mistake after another. The biggest mistake was, well, the biggest mistake was having him enter a guilty plea to begin with, without the plea deal, just to say, yeah, I'm guilty, you know, instead of having two chances. Um, and, you know, although it would have been likely that they wouldn't have, um, you know, there's video of his shooting in the school. So it's unlikely that they wouldn't have found him guilty, but still, um, but what they should have done is not guilty by reason of insanity. And there certainly was enough to rule that he was not guilty by reason of insanity. So that was lost by their just having him say, yes, your honor, I'm guilty of all of these, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of murdering all these people. So, um, Another so the next uh, egregious next most egregious thing that his defense attorneys did was um, they decided and I don't know what uh, what psychiatrist or psychologist or who they were listening to, but they decided to base their defense on um, uh, his mental problems, um, but then their main diagnosis of what his mental problems were, according to whoever they were listening to, who doesn't know what the hell they're talking about, um, was a, a, a fetal alcohol syndrome. In other words, saying that his mother um, drank alcohol during her pregnancy, which she most likely did because she took drugs during her pregnancy. Um, and and that is supposed to explain why he shot all these people, went into the school. I mean, <laughs> that, that, there's no way to believe that. There are people who have fetal alcohol syndrome. I mean, this is a syndrome. It does exist. It has to do with mothers who drink too much alcohol during their pregnancy. And it is a disorder where um, people can have, you know, the, the babies um, can come out with certain problems, you know, like cognitive problems and emotional problems, but they are not at the level <laughs> of, of going into a school and shooting. And they're not at the level of hearing voices and all the things that Nicholas had. So they start and they started from the beginning with a ridiculous and not to mention also the jury. You know, the people, probably some of the jury members know people or know of people who have had fetal alcohol syndrome or whose child has fetal alcohol syndrome. And they know damn well that that doesn't make people go into a school and kill 17 people. So um, it was it was absurd. And um, so I in my in my column um, I explained, you know, I went inside the criminal mind. I went inside the criminal mind of Nicholas Cruz and I explained why he did what he did. Um, first of all, he did begin life with the deck stacked against him. His mother, whose name was Brenda Woodward, was a homeless, violent career criminal. And it is known that she abused drugs during her pregnancy. So I guess they were sort of assuming um, that she also abused alcohol. And she gave him up for adoption. So now, you typically, when people are given up for adoption, unless they have the great um, good fortune of landing where um, with a wonderful family, and that does happen, but they need to be in therapy uh, pretty early on 
because it, it is very hard to get over this feeling that you are not lovable, that your mother didn't love you. That's why she gave you up. Now, that is not, you know, the case a lot of times or, well, not in, not in Nicholas Cruz's case. I mean, his mother was, uh, well, yes, she wasn't going to be a good mother. And you could say maybe she wanted her son to have a better, a better life and so on, rather than because of her being homeless and a violent criminal who ended up in jail <laughs> from time to time. Um, I mean, sometimes mothers, I'm not giving saying in a general sense that it's bad to give your baby up for adoption, adoption, but um, it does leave a, children with the feeling, whether it's true or not, that they were unlovable, that that's why they blame themselves and think that's why their mother gave them up, because she didn't love them, because they were unlovable. So children who are given up for adoption need to um, have uh, and first of all, it needs to be explained to them very well that uh, it's because the mother loved them that they gave them up. They knew they couldn't take care of them. Um, and more often than not, they need therapy to work out these feelings about being unlovable. Well, Nicholas Cruz did not get this early therapy, but he was adopted into a uh, comfortable home, Roger and Linda Cruz, but his father died. His adoptive father died when he was five or six. His, he died suddenly of a heart attack. And so his mother had to go to work to make money. And that left very little time to nurture Nicholas and uh, also did not allow her to see how urgent it was that she got him into therapy. Well, I need to take a break now. But um, when we come back, I will continue, I will tell you the truth about Nicholas Cruz, and then we will go on to Kristen Smart. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. 
speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're talking today about so many trials, so little time. Talking to you today about um, two trials in particular that are going on right now where the verdict should be coming in this week and um, giving you some background on them. We've been talking about the trial of Nicholas Cruz, the uh, young man who was the Parkland shooter. He um, murdered 17 people. Actually, he's he entered a guilty plea, and then I was, and as I was saying earlier, was the, a big mistake. His attorney's first big mistake or biggest mistake. He entered a guilty plea to 17 counts of murder and 17 counts of attempted murder of students and, sta- and staff at Marjorie Don- Stone ah, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. But now, so now the question is not whether he's guilty or not, since he already gave that away. He should have he should have not entered a guilty plea because he really uh, the real appropriate um, uh, verdict or um, charge should be not guilty by reason of insanity. So um, anyhow, I was telling you about how he was adopt- adopted and how his mother was uh, abused drugs and alcohol during her pregnancy and gave him away. And he was adopted by a nice family. But unfortunately, the father, his adopted father, died when he was five or six and died suddenly. His mother had to go to work to make money for the family. She had also adopted his brother. Um, And so uh, she wasn't, not only wasn't she around very much to nurture Nicholas, but she also wasn't more wasn't aware enough of how serious his mental problems were. So um, the shadow of genetics loomed. In other words, his mother being a uh, um, a homeless, violent career criminal, a, a sci- having sociopathy. Um, and so he started soon uh, manifesting the signs of sociopathy, of torturing animals and setting fires, and most likely bedwetting, although he hasn't admitted that, to my knowledge, uh, the bedwetting part. But we do know that he uh, tortured animals and he set fires. The sheriffs were called over 45 times to his home for various problems, including his violent acting out. His mother was not a very good disciplinarian. um, And he was pretty much allowed to just kind of run loose. Um, He has, she, he did, she did eventually take him for some therapy. um, And he, but he, he really, Oh, it was like uh, Keystone Cops. The therapists were like the Keystone Cops. In other words, they really didn't know what the hell they were doing, clearly, because he got lots of different diagnoses, ADHD, autism, depression, and so on. But they seem to have missed his most significant diagnosis, which is schizophrenia. 
Now, um, he had voice, he heard voices. They gave him command hallucinations. In other words, the voices told him what to do. He called these voices demons. Uh, they told him to hurt himself and hurt others. And he did, you know, of course, um, in a flourish when he, when he went, uh, when he shot up, um, the Parkland high school. But, um, and, and as I said in the first segment that I uh, analyzed on live television, his play-by-play, by play, his jailhouse interrogation. So I saw him talk about his voices. You know, you could say, well, maybe he just was saying he had voices. He didn't really hear voices. He was just making that up to not get into trouble, you know, or to blame, to say that, that uh, to get off because he was crazy. But that is not the way that... Um, you know, a good forensic psychiatrist is able to tell the difference between someone making something up and uh, and really having it. He medicated himself with marijuana and Xanax because um, in order to quiet the voices. And that didn't really help because it sort of tentative temporarily helped um, because it kind of put him in a fog. But it really made his underlying condition worse. I mean, marijuana, um, if, if you're born with a genetic predisposition to schizophrenia or bipolar, marijuana, even though it, a lot of people self-medicate with marijuana, but it really makes their underlying illness worse. Um, then let's see. Uh, he, so he did go to treatment uh, on and off at Henderson Behavioral Health for during a nine-year peri- period. Um, and the, he was never Baker acted, even though he his mother would call, you know, call the sheriffs and so on. Um, they never uh, Baker acted him, which means in Florida, that is what they call when they hospitalize you against your will. Now, clearly, when he was, you know, doing these violent things um, and and torturing animals and killing animals and all of that, um, clearly there was enough. If they if the therapists uh, asked more details, um, they would have known that they should have hospitalized him against his will. And this wouldn't have happened. And then when he turned 18, he stopped going to treatment. No one made him go to treatment and he fell through the cracks. And then the final trigger was when his mother, his adopted mother, died suddenly of flu and pneumonia in November of 2017. And remember, he went on this uh, school shooting in February of 2018, Valentine's Day. So that was the final straw. And um, he projected his rage at his biological mother for giving him up and um, his adoptive mother for dying although of course you know uh, logically he didn't he knew that she didn't purposely die to leave him but he felt that people uh, and and then the school he projected these these uh, feelings that he had towards his mother's to, onto Marjorie Stoneman Douglas high school because they had expelled him as well they had rejected him they they wouldn't let him go to school there anymore and then he picked Valentine's Day because um, it highlighted how he had no one who loved him and he wanted to spoil the day of love for other people. And also it would make him most notorious as the Valentine's Day school shooter. Now, um, let me just, uh, let's see. 
Um, so needless to say, I'm just going through. Yeah. Um, he, needless to say, there are other, whatever, whatever, um, whatever he is, whatever the verdict is or not the, the, the punishment is he, it, it should be shared. The guilt, <laughs> you know, should be shared. Whatever he found, they find him guilty of and whatever they punish, however they punish him. Um, the people should share his punishment, his biological parents, adoptive parents, the mental health professionals, his schools, the FBI who ignored warnings on social media about him that he posted, the family who took him in at the end and kept the key, uh, let him keep the key to the gun safe, and then the makers of the violent entertainment that he was obsessed with. Um, now, his his performance, you know, when he was in uh, court, he told the judge, this was another thing that his lawyers did that were, were, was a huge mistake. Uh, he told the judge that he was not mentally ill. Now, why would you do that? Um, and that, of course, in itself demonstrates his lack of insight into his condition. Uh, then he went on to a rambling, a rambling speech. He was talking about, I love you, you know, to his victims. He asked his victims to decide his fate instead of a jury. He was just kind of rambling. So you could see in court that he did have a mental illness. Um, now, let's see. But there, there's going to be a lot of pressure on the jurors to uh, to to give him the um, to give him death because Florida, you know, there are so many people who were affected in Florida by this school shooting. Now, there's something that just came out today um, where the prosecutor is saying, uh, quote, Nicholas Cruz's disorders did not cause him to abuse animals, to hate women, to have racist obsessions, or to cause him to murder 14 kids and three caretakers. Um, I mean, this this uh, prosecutor, Mike Satz, is um, just, you know, <laughs> throwing the book at him, of course. And just trying to whip up the jurors to give him death. Um, you know, you heard what I wrote in my, <coughs> excuse me, in my, um, in my column about um, about why he uh, picked Valentine's Day. And uh, so this was, you know, I wrote the column several months ago. This just came out today. Um, he was, they showed a video of some of the, presumably the, um, the prosecution's, uh, mental health experts examining him. And so they asked him if there was anything else that they wanted, he wanted to tell them. And Cruz said, um, you know, ask me why I chose Valentine's day. And so he said, it's because I thought no one would love me. I didn't like Valentine's Day and I wanted to ruin it for everyone. Uh, so anyhow, it's what I said <laughs> months before. Actually, I said it when he first did it, come to think of it. Um, I explained why he was, you know, why he did this. All right. Let's turn. So, so please, please listen for the verdict. The only, the only saving grace I am hoping for is that if they do, uh, give him death that um, he will appeal it uh, and that he will get be granted the appeal 
based on ineffective assistance of counsel. Hopefully, the, whoever the lawyers are who take his appeal, write the appeal for him, will realize that he had ineffective assistance of counsel and that he should have been, um, that this should have been, this should have gone a totally different way, that they should have said that he had schizophrenic, that he was schizophrenic, that he should have never admitted that he was guilty to begin with, and that they should have gone for not guilty by reason of insanity. All right, let's go to Kristen Smart. Kristen Smart, this relates to a murder that happened in 1996. Uh, they first gathered enough evidence to arrest and try the two people that they think are involved with her murder. So Kristen Smart um, was a freshman at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, California, as I mentioned uh, before. And um, on May 25th, 1996, she went to a college party. Now, she was and, and was never seen again after the party. Um, she was declared legally dead six years after this party, after she disappeared. And it has long been presumed that she was raped and murdered. So the trial has been going on um, of the people, the trial of the people who they think were involved. And yes, I totally agree that these people are responsible. Paul Flores, who is now 45, he was a freshman just like she was. He was her classmate. And his father, Ruben Flores, um, he's 80, the father is 81. And so Ru Paul is charged with murder, and the father is charged as an accomplice after the fact. So why did it take 26 years for them to be brought to trial? Well, it's because of uh, this, her story or this story of her death is a web of lies, half-hearted investigative work, and a public relations cover-up by the university. The university didn't want uh, it to get out that one of their freshmen had been killed Um by particularly not they, they particularly didn't want to get it to get out that that she was killed by another freshman by you know another student at the college so there was lots of uh, there were lots of cover-ups at the beginning they thought maybe she just uh, that she wasn't dead i mean I'm, when i say they i mean the the college um security department um, they, you know, they tried to tell the parents that, oh, she must have just left for the weekend because it was, um, it was, um, Memorial Day weekend. So the, the security at the college tried to say that, oh no, she just must have left with some friends and gone away for, um, the holiday and she'll turn up. <laughs> So they lost a lot of time, you know, the, the, the first 48 hours, right, you know, are the most important hours um, in terms of getting leads for what happened. So, um, so it really, they started kind of behind the eight ball. Eventually, the college police told the um, uh, San Luis Obispo police, but they got them involved way too late. And um, then the FBI was eventually involved, but um, 
again, way, way too late. And so they they missed lots of clues, you know, they lost lots of lots of cues, clues and witnesses and so on. But they certainly do have enough. Um, and and hopefully the jury will see that Paul Flores and his father, Ruben Flores, are guilty as sin. <laughs> and um, they will be able to give the family, her Kristen's family, some peace. So when we come back, I will tell you the story of Kristen Smart and of Paul Flores. I'm going to look, tell you who each of these people were. Um, and you put it together at the end for yourself. This is a very interesting trial because they're actually doing two separate trials in a way as one. It's really rather confusing. I'm not sure. Um, but, but we do need to take a break right now. And when we come back, I will try to untangle the whole thing for you. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're talking today about so many trials, so little time. And uh, I'm putting my forensic psychiatrist expert witness hat on and talking to you today about two trials that are going on as I speak and you listen. <laughs> well, I don't know when you're going to be listening to this, but um, today, as I speak, yes, these are going on. They're going to be verdicts coming before the end of the week. So we talked about Nicholas Cruz, and now I'm talking to you about uh, Kristen Smart. Very sad case. 
of um, a 19-year-old girl, a freshman at Cal Poly in California, who was um, murdered, raped and murdered. And 26 years ago, or let's see, maybe 20, um, well, yes, I guess it's, <laughs> when I wrote the column, it was 26 years ago. Um, and I guess it still is. Anyway, <laughs> um, why did it take 26 years? Well, um, we're going to see how the, it is, you know, as I was saying before the break, they lost a lot of time. They lost not only the first 48 hours, but more than that, because the uh, school um, security was, uh, you know, took it too lightly. Uh, they said, oh, well, we have this all the time. You know, freshman girls go to parties and then they, you know, people don't, they stay away and people don't know where they are, but they're safe and they come back. And that is not what happened with Kristen Smart. Anyhow, Kristen was born on February 20th, 1977 to De Denise and Stan, who were Americans living in West Germany. They were working as teachers and they came back to the United States and they moved to California and she went to Stockton High School, uh, where from which she was graduated. And they moved around a little bit in California. And but she had a Norman Rockwell type childhood, really the kind of um, sort of seemed like a perfect family, a perfect. I mean, no family is perfect, but <laughs> um, they did things like I mean, she had loving parents and a brother and a sister. And um, they had a lot of fun together. She had a part in the Nut Nutcracker Suite. She went to Girl Scouts. They went to church as a family. She had a lemonade stand. She was a surfer girl. I mean, really. Then she went and uh, worked as a camp counselor in Hawaii. So her mother described her as a dreamer. And her father described her as feeling invincible. They sort of contradict each other a bit. But um, I think that, you know, I think that they were both true. They just both were, they were both, they were sides of herself, both sides of herself. Unfortunately, um, the feeling invincible part, you know, got her in a lot of trouble. In fact, it was this wholesome childhood that may have left her unprepared for the challenges of college life. You know, she was very well protected in her home. Her parents were always, you know, paying attention to what she was doing and all that. And um, when she got to college, um, she, she, you know, as happens, especially with college girls, but um, where, you know, when they, if they had been living at home before going to college and then they're living on campus as she was, um, they try on different identities, different, and she did. She, you know, tried having people call her different names. She changed her hair. She changed her clothes. And she was just trying to find herself. So she started out majoring in architecture. That was really what her dream was. But then she found that it was more difficult than she had thought it would be. And she struggled and she became disillusioned. And she was thinking of dropping out. So here it was, the end of May, you know, practically the end of the school year, and she had had a very hard time and was feeling kind of um, discouraged. And um, she, while she was in college, she uh, called her parents every Sunday uh, 
and they were encouraging her to finish out the semester. Now, um, a former high school classmate who sat behind her in math said, quote, she was really shy. She wasn't a party girl in high school. So he was thinking that maybe she sought out uh, a party that night, you know, this fateful night when she disappeared, um, thinking, I wish that I had this fun in high school. So, all right, that's Kristen. Now we'll go to Paul Flores. Paul was born on October 22nd, 1976, to an Hispanic father, Ruben, who was born in Compton, California, and a Caucasian mother, Susan, who was born in New York. She moved to Southern California and she worked in a bank, and that's where she met Ruben. Uh, he was 10 years older than she was, and he was a very controlling man. And so he must have seen Susan pounced on her, although let me tell you, as a New Yorker myself, born and bred in New York, <laughs> we are the sharpest. <laughs> I mean, you can't really put one, usually you can't put one over on a New Yorker, but uh, for some, well, Susan had moved here. She didn't really know many people, so she was kind of vulnerable. And um, she, so she met Ruben and he was 10 years older uh, than she was. And he saw her as a vulnerable young woman who he could dominate and control. And he married her within a year. He got her to marry him within a year. Then they had a daughter and then they had a son, Paul, Paul Flores. So Ruben, the father, worked for the telephone company. Um, <clears throat> now, there were a lot of people who were interviewed who knew Paul as a little boy. And um, there are photos of Paul Flores. And if you look at the photos, he looks like uh, an angel, like literally. He looks, um, he, he, he has a very sweet face and he, um, he, he just looks, he looks like butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. And he had platinum blonde hair. He had a cute round face. And these looks turned out to be deceiving, however. So the people who knew him back then, there, as I said, a number of people who have been coming forward and telling stories about him that show that um, he was developing a very worrisome personality. Um, for example, um, and they foreshadowed his becoming an alleged murderer. For example, uh, he was fixated on a little girl and he pushed her underwater in the pool and she would have drowned if an adult hadn't dragged him away. In other words, people were screaming at him, let her up, let her up. And he wouldn't let her up. So finally they dragged him away. Then there's a story about in, him in middle school where he was stomping on the head of a meek little boy. He knocked him unconscious and the little boy had to go to the hospital for almost a week with severe injuries. And the school told Paul's parents to take him to therapy for anger management, but instead they just left town. The parents, the family, the family, the parents took the family and uh, uh, and left town, and um, never got him therapy. And they moved to Arroyo Grande, which was is near San Luis Obispo. And then um, when when 
when people heard when these, you know, so it's very close by. So, uh, you know, when, when Kristen Smart went missing, it was a big deal, um, especially in uh, central California, but, you know, it was, of course it got national attention as well. And so um, when people heard about her going missing, they, um, they, they suspected right away that it was Paul, like whoever knew Paul <laughs> uh, said that, you know, they remembered the various incidents from childhood and his not getting therapy for anger management. And they knew it was him. So what could have happened to this angelic looking boy to talk, turn him into a monster? Um, people who they interviewed witnesses and people who knew Paul throughout his, you know, as he got older, they, they, uh, when they were investigating this crime over the 26 years, uh, they investigated people who worked with him and lots of different people. And he was, they found that people, especially women consistently called him creepy, Paul, scary, Paul, psycho, Paul, and Chester, the molester. And this was even before he met Kristen. Um, <laughs> typically murderers have been abused as children, physically, sexually, emotionally, and or by neglect. And Reuben, the father, um, it has been rumored was physically abusive to Paul. And we do know that Reuben, the father was, uh, perpetrated domestic violence on his wife, on Paul's mother. So um, as for psychiatric diagnoses throughout his life, you know, people talked about him as being awkward, strange, odd, a loner. There's a story about him hiding in a tree um, and looking down on a party like he didn't join in on things. Um, he peeped through the windows to stare at other people. He didn't know how to interact appropriately. He had a stutter. And that was especially prominent when he was flustered and so on. And all of the research that I did into Paul tells me that his diagnosis was and should have been, if he had been brought to a uh, psychiatrist, would have been Asperger's. That is a syndrome on the higher functioning end of autism spectrum disorder. Or also he could have been, he could have had his diagnosis, schizotypal personality disorder, as well as antisocial personality disorder. So these psychological problems um, got in the way of his being able to socialize with people, to have friends and girlfriends and to lead a normal life. And these frustrations he channeled into interactions that were mainly aggressive. Um, he would, so like when he would like a girl, kind of like if you think about pushing the girl, the little girl, little girl under the water in the pool and not getting off her, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, you know, when, when little boys like little girls, um, so they pull their hair or something like that. Well, he took it <laughs> to a higher degree, you know, tried to kill her, tried to drown her. Um, uh, and that's kind of how he acted, interacted, especially with women as he got older. He would attack women. He, you know, there were witnesses to this, like at parties and so on. He would be very aggressive sexually, you know, like try to um, uh, drag them into the bathroom and, um, you know, get them to have do something sexual with him rather than because he knew he couldn't just have a conversation and charm them. So there are reports that Paul gave women before and after Kristen 
date rape drugs. And um, this lack of social skills that he had uh, made him feel as though the only way he could get them to have sex with him was by putting them in a stupor so they couldn't fight back. And there have been women over the years and, you know, with through this investigation who have come forward with stories that show how Paul was a predator. He stalked them. He groped their crotch. He tried to pay them to urinate in front of them or sit bottomless on a glass coffee table. I mean, these were like sick things. Um, he held a knife to their neck. He pushed them into places where no one would hear them scream while he forced himself on him. I mean, this, of course, is the kind of person who um, who would be most likely, you know, um, someone to rape and kill um, Kristen. Now, get now let's talk about the father, Ruben Flores. A co-worker of Ruben Flores's wife, Susan, said, quote, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up when I met Ruben. Um, and other people have said similar kinds of things. Um, <clears throat> they talk about him at, who, as a man who lies as easily as he breathes. Um, now, they, they have found things like they, they, there is evidence. So, for example, um, they eventually, eventually, when they looked in, when they got a cadaver dog who was tra trained to detect human remains, um, and they brought him into Paul's room at the college, his dorm room, this dog reacted to the mattress and other items in his dorm room. So... Reuben, the father, when he was told about this, said, oh, no, it wasn't Kristen. It could have been steak. <laughs> uh, so Reuben, as I said, um, perpetrated domestic violence towards his wife. She was he put her in the hospital on at least two occasions. Um, Susan did uh, he, when Reuben had a job that took him away from home. Susan did have an affair. They eventually separated and divorced. And witnesses said that Reuben tore down missing posters uh, of Kristen once she, you know, went missing and he called her a dirty slut. Now, why would Reuben um, call this woman, this, this college co-ed, a dirty slut uh, when he didn't even know her? Um, but it could be that Paul, his son, complained to him that she was really pretty and she wouldn't go out with him. So had his father simply told him to take what he wanted? When um, on the night of her disappearance, she wasn't acting herself. Uh, it seems like she got drunk or he um, gave her a date rate drug. And um, he, uh, when she was, you know, acting somewhat drunk or again, intoxicated from this date rape drug, he offered to walk her home. And that is when she was never seen again after that. Now, there is, um, you know, there, there's, there's more to the story, but this, that, this is the gist of it. And these, um, you know, there isn't a body that is going to be the problem in the trial, uh, that they have never found her. And there was a time when Paul, the son said that he would take a plea deal and he would, um, show them where the body was if he gave them a good plea deal, but then he backed off of that. So there is no question 
And if you want to read some more about this or also about Nicholas Cruz, again, you can go to frontpagedetectives.com and um, read read these columns, read my other columns. Um, but, you know, I, I just hope that um, they are both going to be convicted. The father, as Paul, for having raped or at least killed her, they may, they don't have a body. It's going to be hard to prove that she was raped. But, um, but certainly, um, for that matter, hard to prove he killed her, except for all of these, there is a bunch of evidence. And there's evidence that the father hid her under his house and then moved her. And that's another part. That's why the father is being charged as an accomplice after the fact. So check out these verdicts. Now you know their stories and um, check out whether whether indeed um, they will find, as they should, the, the Fl Paul Flores and Ruben Flores guilty and um, give Nicholas Cruz um, life without parole. Not to, No one is going to be, that's not going to bring the kids back from Parkland High School if they kill him. Thank you for listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.